Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. Uh, It's Thursday the 9th of September today in the afternoon and we're going to begin with Afghanistan and then consider Australia's alliance with the United States as the Security Pact marks its 70th anniversary. From there, we'll look back and forward as Australian diplomacy ramps up in 2021 with recently concluded bilaterals and a big trip getting underway today for the foreign and defence ministers. And mention in passing a curious speech from the Treasurer. And we'll finish by marking the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. So to begin with Afghanistan, obviously Kabul fell to the Taliban on the 15th of September and re-recorded our emergency podcast on the 17th. And a very intense few weeks would follow where the world watched the rapid end of the 20-year war in real time in all its messiness and horror. US troops came in and deployed to secure Kabul airport and then would pull out for good on Monday the 30th of August. And in that short time, the US claims that well over 100,000 people were evacuated, a figure which, of course, has to be juxtaposed with the daily stories of Afghans and foreigners attempting to run the gauntlet to get to Kabul airport through Taliban checkpoints and often not succeeding. And it's certainly true that there are thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of Afghans and others who wanted to leave but have not been able to do so on these evacuation flights. Aside from the evacuation, there are two other events from these two weeks that are worth noting. One, a suicide attack that was claimed by the terror group ISIS-K outside of the airport at a checkpoint, which killed over 170 people, including, uh, I think it was 13 US military personnel. And subsequently, second, a US drone strike that was aimed at thwarting a second attack on the airport, which didn't happen, so I assume on some level it was successful, but in doing so, which reportedly killed 10 civilians, including seven children. So, Alan, with that small summary, now that the official war, you might say, is over and this phase of Afghanistan's history has ended, would you? How would you characterise this frenzied evacuation? Would you see it as as a success? And how does the messiness of the past two weeks change, if at all, your judgment on the merits of withdrawing in the first place? I'm afraid I'm going to throw that straight back to you, Darren, because I've been sort of frozen, simultaneously moved by the stinging sense of condemnation and despair and betrayal coming from people I admire and at the same time offended by the speed with which developments have been turned into political rocks to be thrown at Biden by people without much self-reflection. So I'll let you go first. How have you seen it? Well, I, I guess my starting point in assessing these events is simply the fact that we lost a war. You know, a two-decade effort to remake a defeated country has failed. So when I think of the trauma that has been experienced by Afghans, by the US, Australian and other service members, military, 
by the international civilian personnel, you know, everyone, anyone and all who have been connected to this 20-year effort, I kind of see that trauma as being somewhat akin to the trauma that entire nations suffer when they lose wars. It's just that those in the West of my generation and younger, I guess, have not experienced this trauma in our lifetimes. And it's it's awful. And I mentioned this last time, that, you know, the darkness that I know is being felt by people I know. And I really sort of empathize with that. But then putting my analyst's hat back on, and now with the benefit of hindsight, I have to admit, I don't see a realistic way that we could have won this war. And I'm not persuaded that there was a better way to lose it. I don't think extending the deployment would have worked for reasons we discussed last time, that the Taliban would almost have certainly have begun to target Western troops. And I accept the argument that trying to evacuate thousands of internationals and Afghans earlier, I accept that that's been dismissed correctly because it would have actually accelerated the collapse. And from a political perspective, I think it would have allowed pundits to blame the Taliban's sweeping victory that we now know didn't need any help from the US, but they still would have been able to blame that on the decision to evacuate this or to accelerate this withdrawal you know, ahead of the troops being withdrawn. So I actually was impressed by the evacuation in terms of it as a logistical feat. But given the nature of the mission, there was no upper limit for success. There will always be more that could have been done. And we have seen the lack of more on our screens in the, in the past few weeks and excellent reporting. That's the tragedy and there is tragedy everywhere. But I think that's what happens when you, when you lose a war. And to finish, before I hand it back to you, Alan, hands down the best thing I've read on this tragedy, and it really might be the best piece of writing I've read all year, was an opinion piece by Ezra Klein, who we've talked about many times on the podcast before, who is now writing for the New York Times. And I want to quote a portion of this, of this op-ed. The tragedy of humanitarian intervention as a foreign policy philosophy is that it binds our compassion to our delusions of military mastery. We awaken to the suffering of others when we fear those who rule them or hide among them. And in this way, our desire for security finds union with our desire for decency. Or we awaken to the suffering of others when they face a massacre of such immediacy that we are forced to confront our passivity and to ask what inaction would mean for our souls and self-image. In both cases, we awaken with a gun in our hands or perhaps we awaken because we have a gun in our hands. This is the deep lacuna in America's foreign policy conversation. The American foreign policy establishment obsesses over the harms caused by our absence or withdrawal, but there's no similar culpability for the harms we commit or that our presence creates. We are much quicker to blame ourselves for what we don't do than what we do. So, Alan, that's my views. I mean, how how do you react to that or generally to this, to what's happened? Well, th thanks to you, I did, because uh, you recommended it to me, I, I did read that opinion piece by Klein, and I certainly agree with you. My view hasn't really changed since the last time we talked. I'm more sympathetic now to the idea that even if the speed of the Taliban victory wasn't foreseen 
more effort should have been put into preparing for what most people thought was inevitable in the long run in the processing of visas and so on. Though I accept your point that this would need to have been done with great care to avoid precipitating the collapse. But I think it would have been, I think it was possible for a clever policy to have come up with a better way of doing that. And that, that goes for us in Australia as well as, the, as for the Americans. And also, the, the more we learn, the greater, it seems to me, was the failure of the US to adequately consult its allies. And that's really weird coming from an administration which has emphasised, you know, as one of its selling points of its foreign policy has been commitments to allies. I also think, as I said last time, that the concerns about the impact on the US's reputation of what went on there are, well, they're not they're not incorrect, but they are, I think, overblown because you met you mentioned that airlift and one thing we saw in that was the unparalleled capabilities of the US military, you know, when operating effectively. But the lesson, in words that I quoted, I've quoted before from Owen Harry's, uh, that democracy is not an export commodity, it's a do-it-yourself enterprise, and that for all the help that outsiders can provide, nations have to build themselves. You can't do nation building for them. I think they've certainly been reinforced. Watching extraordinary television scenes of the Taliban driving around Kabul in American vehicles and American uniforms with American weapons is also a reminder of the failure of the multi-billion dollar effort to support the Afghan military. Now, I'm absolutely not an expert at all, but it's surely clear that the Afghan force we tried to build was not when the crunch came, the force that Afghanistan needed. Mm, mm. Well, let's look forward through the lens of Australian foreign policy. I think our short-term goals clearly relate to helping those who are still there, if we can, and of course, to welcoming those that are coming into our country. Australia signed on to a statement with 94 other countries on the 30th of August, stating that the Taliban had given assurances that those with travel authorisation from abroad would be able to leave. That same day, Immigration Minister Alex Hawke announced the formation of an advisory panel on Australia's resettlement of Afghan nationals. Prior on the 23rd of August in the Senate, Foreign Minister Maurice Payne gave a very emotional speech in which she acknowledged the fear and desperation in Afghanistan. And this was, of course, as the evacuation was ongoing but insisted that all the hard work and sacrifice from Australia and others had not been in vain. She said that Australia would support international efforts to, quote, maintain pressure, end quote, on the Taliban to meet its responsibility to its people, to the region and to the world. She also said that Australia, quote, must consider how we combat terrorism from here, end quote, and that the government would make, quote, no premature commitments to engage with an Afghan administration that is Taliban-led. Alan, how are you thinking now about what Australia can or should do on this issue in the weeks and months ahead? I wish the government had been a bit more positive in the signals it's been sending about generosity to Afghan refugees. So far, at least, it hasn't moved from a commitment to resettle, you know, quote, more than, unquote, 3,000 Afghans this financial year 
all of them to come within the existing worldwide humanitarian cap of 13,750 people. Now, look, I, I imagine that will change eventually, but when it does, no one is going to be talking about Australia's generous refugee response to this crisis. That said, there have been some positive signs that should be acknowledged. You noted two of them, that advisory panel announced by Immigration Minister Hawke, I think is a fine idea, and it's chaired by Paris Aristotle, who's a man of great experience and compassion in this area. And Maurice Payne's speech to Parliament uh, really was a moving and, and thoughtful response to developments. I asked, well, it's a great thing doing this podcast. I asked last time whether any of our listeners knew what the current Australian position was on the recognition of states rather than governments. And I'm very grateful to the person who, in fact, drew my attention as a result of that to some replies from DFAT to questions on notice, which confirm that was indeed the case. So the government now has to decide whether and on what conditions it's going to deal with the, the Taliban. And uh, that brings up the question of the purpose of diplomatic relations, because uh, for me, anyway, it's precisely at the time that the problems are greatest that we most need to be engaged. And although we have an acting mission operating out of the Gulf, for the sake of our ability to assist those Afghans who need our help, I really do hope we can re-establish operations in Kabul quickly. That seems more important to me than a long round of negotiating on promises from the Taliban. It also seems, to me anyway, the best way of monitoring and reporting on issues such as the treatment of women and minority groups. So, you know, when, when the minister says that Australia will maintain pressure on the Taliban to meet its responsibilities, I think a presence on the ground is a good way of doing that. But look, under almost any conceivable circumstances, the humanitarian situation internally is likely to get worse. And the obvious consequence of that is that unless the international community is engaged, the refugee crisis on Afghanistan's borders and eventually beyond those borders will intensify, and that's going to have obvious implications for Australia down the track. So another reason for being there on the ground, I think Australia's role isn't pivotal, but we should certainly be working closely with other friends and partners and with UN agencies and NGOs. Very well said, Alan, and I don't have anything to add on Australia's responsibility, but to pick up on your last point there about the risks for regional instability, I think it's worth mentioning the role of China. Some have expressed concern at China's growing influence in Afghanistan now, especially given that the Taliban have expressed such enthusiasm about developing ties with Beijing. But that's completely understandable. Afghanistan is on the brink of economic collapse and the country needs all the help it can get. So I see this as an interesting test of Chinese leadership and an important one. You know, Afghanistan's internal situation is of major interest to the entire region, especially across Central Asia. It's one thing for China to secure its own narrower interests there, which of course relate in large part to the shared border. But the region broadly is going to expect and need 
Beijing to use its power and influence to be a much larger stabilizing force to promote regional stability. This is what regional leadership looks like. It's what it requires. And now that the US is gone, China can't simply blame American failures on what's going on. When you aspire to international leadership, at some point, others' problems become your problems. So let's see what happens on that front. Let's see. Yeah. <laughs> let's move on to our second item. America's withdrawal from Afghanistan has, as we have noted, the pundit class up in arms. And I think we've both seen, Alan, some truly wild takes about what this means for the future of US credibility and power. And in Australia, we've been having a parallel but related conversation of this sort because our alliance with the United States is celebrating its 70th anniversary. Our friends at the US Study Centre have been engaged in a flurry of, of high quality work and events around this milestone, including a poll conducted in July, which found very positive evaluations of the alliance. 85% of Australians think it's very or somewhat likely that the US would substantially assist Australia if we faced a military threat. And a plurality, 38% believe the alliance decreases the risk of attack compared to 23% who said it increases it. In public debates, views have ranged widely, unsurprisingly, from those who have celebrated the alliance and are looking to build upon it to those who argue that being in the alliance actually makes Australia less safe. So, Alan, anniversaries are useful both to celebrate but also to reflect. Now, I can't remember, but have we discussed the fact that there is a new edition of your book on Australian foreign policy, Fear of Abandonment, that has been published? You have indeed been kind enough to refer to it before, Darren, and it all helps because it turns out that launching a book in the middle of a pandemic is not an ideal time, but at the risk of being absolutely accurately accused of crude self-promotion, can I just say that anyone interested is welcome to take part in the virtual launch, which I'll be doing with my esteemed friend, Professor Caitlin Byrne from Griffith University online on the 23rd of September. Details on the AIIA homepage. Back to you with thanks, Darren. <laughs> well, we'll make sure we post them in the show notes too. It can't hurt to mention the book again. But while I imagine China took up most of your focus on thinking about how to update it for, for the last few years, I'm sure you would also have reflected on the alliance and more so given the past few weeks. Can you summarise your current thinking on the role the alliance should be playing in Australian foreign policy? I've often said that when you look back over the past 70 years of Australian foreign policy, you can find every five years or so a statement from the government at the time saying that the world Australia faces has never been more fluid and uncertain. But a close second to that assertion would come the claim that the strength of the ANZUS Alliance has never been greater. I haven't actually done the search, but I'm sure you would find something like this from every Australian government since Malcolm Fraser's, and we heard it again from Prime Minister Morrison last week. I've got no doubt that that's the way it looks from the inside, but from outside, I have to say, I'm not so sure. And that's not due to any lack of commitment on either side, but more to the uncertainty of American politics. 
the mere fact that it's not at all unlikely that Donald Trump will return as US president in three years in itself, it seems to me, weakens the underpinning solidness of the alliance, the sort of sense of continuity under any future administration. We'll come to 9-11 later, but the main consequence of that event for Australia's relations with the US was certainly to reinforce first through the war on terrorism and then the military involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq the centrality of the military alliance within the overall relationship. In a way that had never been quite true in the past, the military link was the relationship. And that's been strengthened further, I think, by the refocusing of American grand strategy on competition with China. This certainly makes Australia a far more relevant player than we ever were in the Middle East wars. But at the same time, it it will make it harder for us to do what we did in Iraq, for example, which was to manage our engagement in a way that provided high levels of political support to our ally, but minimised attendant military and political risks because we weren't a central player. Now, that option is not available in our own region, so political and economic flow-on effects are going to be massive, whatever we do, and we've got to learn to live with that. What, what about you, Darren? How have you read the debates from the past few weeks? Yeah, that's a really good point, Alan. Yeah, at the same time, we're going to want more from the US, but we also are going to have to do more and be involved more yeah. in contrast to the, to the Middle East. Well, you won't be surprised that my main reaction to the debate is there hasn't nearly been enough international relations theory deployed. <laughs> I've seen I've seen history. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. I've, I'm not laughing. I'm I'm, I'm well I, <laughs> I, I am laughing, but I've seen but I take I take theory seriously, Darren. Sorry. sorry. Well, I've seen lots of history. I've seen <laughs> yeah. you know, critical analysis of varying quality, but I haven't seen direct engagement with the theoretical arguments for why alliances exist. These have been glossed over and that's why I'm here to, to help correct that shortfall. I think the best example, or at least a good example, has been a focus on the fact that the ANZUS Treaty doesn't give Australia a security guarantee. And that's 100% true, but it misses the point. No international alliance gives a 100% guarantee. I mean, are we sure that Donald Trump would have heeded an Article 5 call from NATO if Putin had invaded Estonia, for example? And that's the reality of what we call anarchy in IR theory. There is no higher authority to force a country to adhere to its treaty commitments. Now, that doesn't mean treaties are irrelevant because, of course, they both create favourable conditions for compliance and adherence, and they also raise the cost of, of violation. But what security alliances actually do is increase both sides or all sides who are participating. It increases their material capability to fight because of the defence cooperation prior to war's outbreak that the alliances facilitate. Alliances also increase adversaries or would-be antagonists judgments of the likelihood of the allies fighting together in a war. Now, they don't increase them to 100%, but they do contribute to that assessment. And both these facts, increased defence cooperation and influence on the assessments by other states, 
Together, they give us the main purpose of security alliances, which is to act as deterrents. And you don't want 100% guarantees either. Patrons, the more powerful states, don't want them because they don't want to be sucked into stupid wars that are fought by the client state. And clients also don't want them because they don't want to be sucked into stupid military adventurism by the patron. This is the fear of entrapment, which both sides in the alliance relationship face, and that is the mirror to the fear of abandonment, the title of your book, Alan. So it bears repeating, military alliances play a deterrent function. So if one wants to evaluate an alliance like ANZUS, you have to ask, is there a need to deter would-be adversaries? And if you don't think there is, that there is no deterrent required, that's fine. That would be an argument against the alliance, but you would need to be explicit about that. And if you do believe that there is a need for deterrence, then you can ask whether the alliance in its current form or in some modified form or something else entirely is the best way of doing that. And that's exactly why we need IR theory. (laughs) Thanks, Alan. But while you were saying that, it just occurred to me, hang on, haven't you just written something yourself about this very question? Ah, the shameless (laughs) self-promotion in this podcast continues, Alan. It's striking, actually. You made the point just before that in part as a consequence of 9-11 and thereafter, the military link became the relationship. And that really, that observation was the starting point of a report that I have have written with my friends, Zach Cooper and and Ashley Fang, both of whom are Americans who are based in DC, which was published by the United States Study Centre last week on geoeconomics and the alliance. And the premise of the report is essentially your observation, Alan, that if it's true, or to the extent that it's true that military links are the defining fact of the relationship, it's also true that right now, one of the major, if not the major strategic challenge facing Australia, at least, if not the US as well, is non-military in nature. And there's no better illustration of that fact than the speech that was given by Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, just this past week, which was on the topic of strategic competition, right? And that highlights the fact that on the foremost on the minds of Australian policymakers is economic pressure from China as a strategic challenge. And so that then raises the question, well, if the alliance is our core, sort of one of our core mechanisms for engaging with strategic challenges, are there ways that it can be useful in dealing with this non-traditional security issue coming from the field of economics? And so While we've seen the Americans give us a lot of rhetorical support in sort of this coercive campaign that we're we're suffering, there hasn't been much tangible policy action, any really. And so our report was designed to kind of frame the issue and offer some modest policy recommendations to get things started. But geoeconomics is a very difficult policy domain because of the cross-cutting national interests involved. You know, of course, Australia's goal, immediate goal, should be to get Beijing to stop, you know, disrupting our economic ties, our trade ties. But you don't want to achieve this through lashing out yourself or with your friends using economic retaliation. Two wrongs don't make a right in this case because further economic closure only undermines the broader rules-based economic system. And we obviously have a strategic interest in trying to support that order. 
So we argue in the report that there are some initial steps that could be taken that, that emphasise, I guess, positive and transparent cooperation on this issue. And I'll post a link, of course, in the show notes for those who are interested. But it, like, let me repeat this. It is so clear that geoeconomics is on the minds of Australian officials. To me, it was remarkable that Australia's treasurer, our most senior economic political leader, who has an incredibly broad policy portfolio, which is largely domestic in focus, chose to give a speech this week at the ANU's Crawford Leadership Forum that was explicitly on the topic of strategic competition in the international system. And then actually the following day, our Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, gave his own speech. And where did he give it? Not at the Defence Force Academy, not on a military base or to a security-focused think tank. He gave a speech to the American Chamber of Commerce in Australia, and yeah, during which he brought up politics. He, he criticised China. So in just those two speeches, by Treasurer and by Defence Minister, we can see the collision of economic and security interests and issues and how that is shaping Australia and the world. So it's a good time to be researching and teaching geoeconomics. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, Darren. I hadn't picked up that juxtaposition of the Frydenberg and Dutton speeches. You, look, you were, you were a front runner in the whole field of geoeconomics and you've, you've written an excellent report. But just looking at the two speeches you mentioned, you'd have to conclude that this is an area that's going to benefit from lots more of the sorts of academic research that you and your colleagues have been doing. Because wouldn't you agree, or would you agree, would you agree, that the field needs to hear a bit more from the economics discipline? Isn't it still too often economics in the service of geopolitics rather than how to understand and manage the major economic changes that the outward flowing tide of globalisation are going to bring? I mean, there, there are good reasons why the past decades have seen such good global economic growth and economic integration was a big part of that story. The consequences of the changes now underway are surely going to go way beyond our relationship with China. We've been used to the developing world developing, but what what happens if that stops? So all, all these seem to me to be really fruitful but larger issues than are being talked about at the moment. Yeah, I think that's true, Alan. You, you make a good point. But one thing, I guess, as a political scientist above else that I am very sensitive about is the politics of this issue. More often than not, fear trumps greed. And you know, dry, academic, even if correct statements about the benefits of globalisation and the need to protect it just aren't cutting through in the public discourse, especially, you know, to bring up another phenomenon at a time when there is this parallel populist scepticism of the larger system. Sadly, I think we take the benefits for granted and we'll only recognise them when we lose them. And that's a problem, but that's the political reality. So economists or anyone who wants to make the argument can't simply say you need to remember the gains since that message isn't cutting through. Don't get me wrong, I'm very sympathetic to that argument, but I think an effective communication strategy, an effective political strategy, is to meet the security community on their terms, since often the geoeconomic arguments they're making are pretty bad. So accept that there are legitimate security objectives, 
but rigorously apply economic thinking to make sure those objectives are actually going to be met by policy proposals. And in doing so, you can highlight the immense costs involved as well. And here's one simple example. You have the idea that we need to onshore much more manufacturing capacity to reduce supply chain vulnerabilities. But if you did that, even if you did that, that doesn't actually reduce supply chain risk necessarily. It just shifts it because it makes the economy vulnerable to domestic disruptions like natural disasters or labour disputes or something like that. So I think framing the debate in this way is a more effective argument in a narrative sense than saying, well, onshoring manufacturing would be too expensive and it's protectionist, which in most cases it would be. Hmm. But that argument isn't cutting through. So I think economic voices can influence the debate more, but they need to see and work with the political landscape they've been given rather than just pushing back against it with dry, even if correct, economic theory. Yeah, no, good good points. I acknowledge that. Let's let's move on to our third item then, which is sort of the ramp up of Australian diplomacy. You know, talk of the alliance sort of brings us here. We've seen an uptick in Australian diplomacy lately. In the past few weeks, Australian officials and ministers have participated in a number of virtual ministerial meetings. We have Singapore, the Philippines, Papua New Guinea, India, which was a trade meeting, and the Quad countries, which was a senior officials meeting as well as the inaugural Australia-France 2 plus 2 ministerial. And I'd note that Australia only held its second 2 plus 2 with Germany back in June. So clearly there is momentum developing with our European partners. Today, Thursday, our Foreign Minister and Defence Minister leave for a big international trip that will encompass visits to Indonesia, to India and to South Korea. And then, of course, on to Washington, D.C. next week for the annual OSMIN consultations. So to me, it does feel like the cogs of diplomacy and engagement are spinning faster once again. And, of course, we'll be entering summit season over the next few months. So lots of different things to choose from here, Alan, but let's frame the question this way. I mean, how should we be thinking about Australia's objectives for the rest of the year? Yeah, it's good news that travel is back on. We've talked before about the difficulties of virtual diplomacy and the things you miss out on from Zoom calls. This is a big trip by the two ministers, but it's a very reasonable prioritisation for them. And the arc which they've chosen will have them in Washington for Osmin after having taken the temperature in Indonesia, India and South Korea. So, you know, that'll be a a more interesting conversation there, I think. And they seem to be packing enough into the journey to justify the two weeks quarantine that they'll have to live through at the end of it. This visit's obviously going to play an important preparatory role for the PM's visit to Washington, upcoming visit to Washington, and the putative quad meeting. Look, it's, it's notable that It's not even the subject of much commentary here that putting together all those two plus twos that you noted and this trip by the two ministers, China, which is at the heart of all the discussions, is not on the itinerary. Now, that's China's fault. It's not ours. I've been critical of Australian policy towards China on plenty of occasions But China's decision to to play no speakies with Australian ministers seems to me to completely counter to its own interests. But that remains an issue to reflect on. 
And although climate change is going to play a large part in international politics for the rest of the year, it's hardly mentioned in the two ministers' statement. There's just one word, climate, that's stuck into the middle of a long list of things likely to be on the agenda in Washington in the hope it looked to me that no one would notice. But I I think they will. I don't think we're going to get away without more public attention to the issue of climate. Yeah, we're going to have to deal with this in much more depth on a future episode of the podcast. For me, I'm going to stick with the theme of geoeconomics. I've recommended on the podcast before, I think, a relatively new Substack newsletter by published by my friend and, and ANU colleague, Ben Herskovich, and it's called From Beijing to Canberra and Back. And this week's edition is fantastic, and it has a very nice table where he lists all the joint statements that Australia has released in the past few months in these bilateral meetings that in some way criticise economic coercion. On that list are uh, Japan, the US, New Zealand, Singapore, France, and even the G7. And to quote Ben in the newsletter, this record paints a picture of an increasingly active Australian effort to internationalise and multilateralize its concerns about China's economic coercion. I think that's right, and I think it's exactly the right strategy, and I think it aligns well with the recommendations that we make in our US Study Centre report on geoeconomics and the alliance. Because this is not a strategy of direct retaliation, but it's about building a multilateral consensus that this behaviour is unacceptable, which is a modest but important step in the process. And in the report, we then go on to argue that you would follow it down the track with the construction of an attribution mechanism that is able to identify rule-violating economic disruptions when they occur in the future and sort of using the sort of framing of the idea of naming and shaming, you know, which might not be as satisfying to some as direct retaliation, but has the benefit of looking to support rather than undermine the rules-based trading system. The other major geoeconomic issue, which is building resilient economies and supply chains, I mean, also needs to be tempered by a respect for the broader system and make great efforts to, to privilege as much as possible openness, not closure, you know, r- rules and transparency in the way policy is done, even as it's trying to mitigate legitimate security vulnerabilities. Anyway, I'll stop plugging our report now and, and, and move on to our final item. Which- Just before you do that, Darren, you'd be, you'd be calling out coercion, economic coercion, wherever it occurs? That's, I mean, that's the point. You know, the, the, it's interesting. The EU is building its own counter-coercion instrument. And the, the primary concern right now, I believe, is China. But a few years ago, it was Trump. And so I think Australia has to take a long-term view on this and that Economic coercion that it violates international rules is is unacceptable. It's, and I don't even wouldn't even want to frame it as coercion. Just trade rules, trade actions that violate you know international rules are not in anybody's interests. And so we need to persuade the Americans that there is a bigger story at play here, and that would include you know I think winding back a lot of the tariffs that they've imposed on China. So yes, I mean I, there's 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 no room for hypocrisy. I mean, hypocrisy is a staple of international relations, but I think we as Australia need to look to build a system and support a system that is transparent about what is being done and trying to develop rules and, and norms around what is acceptable. All right. Finally, on 9-11, Alan, you know, part of the reason for Afghanistan making headlines over the past few months was Joe Biden's determination to withdraw by the 20th anniversary. 
and that's in a couple of days from now on, on Saturday. So let's end today with a reflection. I mean, what lessons do you take from Australia's and the world's experience of 9-11 for the present moment? Can, can I just begin by asking, what's your memory of the event, Darren? Well, I was an undergraduate at Monash University at the time, and a few years prior had travelled to New York City, and I took a photo of the Twin Towers from aboard the Staten Island Ferry at sunset, which is a, a beautiful shot. I mean, it's an iconic shot. And I was quite proud of myself, and so I, I, when I came home, I blew it up and, and stuck it almost as a poster on my wall. But even though I was sort of notionally an adult in my early 20s then, I think I was still too young to grasp the significance of what happened, especially having matured during the 1990s through my adolescence, which was really the most benign of decades to be going through that phase of life. I took the photo off my wall and actually brought it into Monash the next morning and stuck it up on a wall inside the law faculty building where I spent a lot of my time. And it was very early in the morning because I had an early class. And the first person who, who happened to walk past and look at it was a classmate, a friend of mine, whose father was actually in New York City at the time working, and he, and he was fine. But my friend just stared at it for a disconcertingly long period of time. He was the only other person in the law faculty basement at the time. And I watched him. He didn't know it was me who'd put it up. But after he walked off, I realized that I had no idea how this was going to be received and kind of got cold feet and pulled the photo down. And look, it's such an inconsequential memory, but it's what sticks with me about that moment. And I think what I take from it is the intellectual realization I had at the time that this was a really big deal, but that I didn't have the emotional maturity to, to really pin down what that would actually mean for people and as a result for the country. What about you? Yeah, well, I was in Beijing on the night it happened and speaking the following morning to a group of uh, really deeply unsettled foreign ministry officials, some of whom had been up most of the night. But I got a, a shock a year or so ago when I asked, as I often do, a group of young graduates entering the, the Australian Public Service for the first time what was the first event they remembered, which made them realise that there was an outside world that could have an impact on them beyond their, you know, their, their families and their neighbourhood. And for a number of years, the answer to that question had been 9-11. But this time I was met only with silence and blank looks. What about 9-11? I asked. Oh, no, one of them came back. I, I was only three at the time. So, look, it's a, it's a reminder of the way this is fading into history for a generation which is now entering the workforce. But there are lots of reasons for remembering it. I've been thinking a lot about memes lately for reasons we might discuss sometime, and I think that's relevant because it was ultimately the theatricality of the assault on the Twin Towers which gave it its force and shock, not just the mass casualties that resulted. For America, and I must, must note that the Bali bombings had the same impact on Australia a year later, it brought foreign policy home in a way nothing else had done. It made us realise that there was no moat keeping the world at bay. In America's case, I think the emotion and force of the event distorted US policy and thinking, particularly in facilitating the catastrophic decision to invade Iraq and the you know consequent way in which that spread the terrorist threat even further. It made us all th rethink our ideas of national security. 
who it was, who was responsible. And that sort of shifted power within governments in Australia, for example, it strengthened the influence of the intelligence organisations and bodies like the Australian Federal Police. And although, as we've been talking about earlier on the podcast, you know, geopolitics and states have come roaring back, it also made us much more conscious of the power of non-state actors from ISIS to Facebook than I think we ever were before. What, what about you? Mm. My main reflection is to observe how profoundly our security response to this external threat, and, and this one obviously was posed by terrorism, dramatically altered the social and institutional fabric of our societies in ways you've kind of described there, Alan, and often in ways that were not positive. The attacks posed an extremely difficult question to us all. In simple terms, how much freedom are you willing to give up for your security? And it turned out quite a lot. Yes, there were limits and institutional safeguards. And, and maybe it's not unreasonable to argue that Australia got the balance right. Is that, is that true? Uh, just this morning, I was reading an article by two academics, which we can put on the show page, pointing out that before 9-11, Australia had no specific counterterrorism laws, but now we have 92 of them, which amount to 5,000 pages of rules, powers and offences, a greater volume, these writers claim, than any other state and more restrictive than any of our close partners, and all of them are passed very quickly through Parliament and with bipartisan support. So, you know, is there something about Australians which makes us more happily compliant with government regulation than the Americans or the, or the French, do you think? Well, if you look at how we're complying with lockdown, maybe maybe there is. But I, look, I chose my words carefully. Another way would be saying that reasonable people could disagree on this question. And I do think that's true. Look, while it's not my area of expertise, you know, I am relatively more persuaded by those who argue the laws are excessive. And yes, I'm uncomfortable with the extension of state power. And I don't like the fact that I've got no way of judging whether they have been effective since a lot of that effectiveness would be in events the laws helped prevent happening. But to say that no reasonable person could support these laws for me is going a step too far. You know, I mean, I'd love to hear indeed, you know, some of the previous guests we've had on the podcast like Paul Simon or, or Duncan Lewis for a view on this. But look, regardless, you know, I, that doesn't mean we have to stop being vigilant. And of course, we should be grateful for the press and we should push for reform. Yeah, well, an another former guest who's written usefully on this was Dennis Richardson, of course, in his review of the legal framework of the national intelligence community that we, we referred to on the podcast, in which I said then very few people will have read, and I think that's probably still the case, but it does repay reading on a lot of these issues. Yeah, yeah. But I think, to, last comment, I mean, to move beyond that issue, we as a society, as a country, are in the early stages of a new question, which also asks how much we value our security. And security now is going to be defined in, in, in even broader ways. But this time, we're not trading off so much against freedom, but for rules, institutions, and, and, and really the entire system that has delivered prosperity and peace to us for decades, as you mentioned earlier, Alan. And this debate exists not 
only in Australia's management of the pandemic or in our strategic competition with China, but of course it also manifests in climate change. And so that's that's where I'm I'm at right now. Anyway, let's wrap up today's episode with our final segment, reading, listening, and watching. Alan, what do you have for us this week? There is not enough literary fiction on this podcast, Darren, and that might be because neither you or I read enough <laughs> literary fiction, but I have just belatedly got around to reading Thomas Power's Pulitzer Prize winning The Overstory. Now, I, I'm a sucker for novels with big social themes which span time and have large casts of characters, and in this case there are nine main figures and multiple generations. I think, in other words, if you like David Mitchell, you're going to enjoy this. It is one of the great ecological novels of recent decades, I think. It reflects very powerfully on trees and forests and their interaction with humans and on the things that we're doing to them and to the planet, and no better time to read it than in these weeks leading up to the Glasgow Climate Change Meeting. Mm, that actually makes me think of a previous recommendation of mine, which was the the novel Dune, which yeah. is coming out in cinemas recently. Yeah. And the really central role that the, the the planet itself and its and its landscape and its ecosystem plays in the shaping of that story. So I'm looking really looking forward to that. Look, I don't have a recommendation this week. I, I think actually it's worthwhile just me emphasizing how good I think that Ezra Klein op-ed was and re- encouraging you all to spend the five minutes to track it down and read it. It was it was so powerful and it affected me. I think not only because it was able to sort of coherently, much more coherently than I ever could express my views, but actually then extend them in and, and deepen them in ways that I hadn't even imagined. So Again, that will be in the show notes. And that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Mitchell McIntosh for audio editing today. And thanks, as always, to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you, and we'll talk to you again soon.